As we continue in our worship, we worship God by listening for his voice that he has revealed both in his word and continues to speak through his spirit. I invite you to open your Bibles, uh, if you have one with you, to John chapter 17. There's others that are in the pew racks in front of most of the seats anyway, if you need one there. If you are new to Grace Covenant, uh, our regular pattern is to work our way through uh, books of the Bible so that God would speak to us. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of John for some time, although we uh, finished up uh, chapter 16 of John, our study of John uh, around uh, Memorial Day. Uh, as we came back in the fall this year, we engaged in our Explore God series, asking seven questions uh, that are almost universal to root our faith in. And now we come back to uh, our study of John for, we'll call it a, a mini-series, as we look uh, for the next three weeks at John chapter 17, uh, what is known as uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, the setting of this is uh, directly connected to John 13 through 16. It's all part of the, the same uh, discourse. Uh, and it is only hours before the crucifixion. The supper has already been participated Jesus has been teaching, uh, and now he turns his attention to prayer on the night before his crucifixion. Uh, our reading today will focus on John 17, 1 through 5, but for context, we'll begin uh, in verse 33 of John 16. And so hear the word of the Lord. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we do come with the expectation and the hope that you have promised that your word does not come back empty. Uh, but uh, bears great fruit, that as we give ourselves to it in our mind and in our heart, that you will speak to us, giving us not only understanding, um, but the word power to shape our lives. Uh, bless us, we pray, uh, that we might find joy uh, and the life uh, that we hunger for, uh, that we might realize that it's found in you, and that you might be glorified. This we pray in Christ. Amen. On January 1st, 1990, as part of his inauguration speech as president of the newly formed Czech Republic, uh, the highly quotable Václav Havel offered a challenge to his new nation. And here's what he said. We have become morally ill because we are used to saying one thing and... And you finish the sentence. We're used to saying one thing and yeah, doing another is one of the things that certainly resonates with us. We recognize all of us hate hypocrisy when we see people or people that are in our midst 
uh, are saying one thing, but we see them living in an entirely different way, and perhaps hate, hate it most of all when we see that same tendency in ourselves, because there's none of us who is immune to that, that we would say one thing and we would do another. And so that's a tremendous challenge, except that's not what Vaclav Havel said. So what Vaclav Havel said as he was challenging his new nation that had formerly been Czechoslovakia, now moving out of the Soviet influence and becoming uh, independent, his challenge to them as where they'd been and to direct them and where they were going was this. We have become morally ill because we are used to saying one thing and thinking another. And one of the difficulties that we uh, wrestle with at times, especially as we see that he was challenging his country, is that at times we can become so used to hypocrisy, we can be so used to what we are supposed to say, how we are supposed to perform, that we become un subconscious, unconscious uh, of the reality that it really is not even a reflection of our thoughts. Our lives are a facade as compared to what we deeply feel. And rather than just simply labeling this kind of idea to be hypocrisy, he calls it a moral evil and is pulling his people out of that. And it's something that's important to understand because we believe and we know that what is said and what is done should be consistent with what somebody thinks. Here in John chapter 17, we have a great privilege to glimpse into the mind and the heart of God to see what his thoughts are by the prayers that are offered up. We look at a conversation that is taking place between Jesus uh, and his father. For the past three years, Jesus has been in ministry. He has been uh, teaching about the ways of the kingdom of God. He has been engaging the people who are around him, demonstrating compassion for the people, meeting their tangible needs, at times even performing miracles to, to meet those needs, as well as to demonstrate that he had been sent from God and he carries with him the power of God. And now, in these past week, in particular, that we see recorded in John chapter 13 and 16, Jesus had intensified that ministry in what Bible scholar Frederick Dale Bruner calls a graduate course in discipleship for those who are around him, as he was speaking very plainly about who he was and what was to come engaging the people, confronting the people, drawing the attention to him as the one who had been sent by God. And he is speaking and teaching his disciples along the way. And even in the last verse of chapter 16, in verse 33 that we read, we see he concludes his instruction with, with three profound ideas when he reminds them that in me you will have peace even though that this world itself is broken. And that he has overcome or he has triumphed over this world uh, that is broken. And then thirdly, he says, because of these two things, because I've overcome this world and because you can have peace in me, you should be of good heart. You should cheer up. Be of good cheer. Because those are two truths of the kingdom that are lived out here in your midst. And this be of good heart, be of good cheer, that's not a suggestion. The, the force of the words is that's a command, which then requires us to go back to root ourselves in the things that he's instructed us, the two foundations that are enabling us to have good hearts, to be of good cheer. But now Jesus concludes that conversation 
And he turns his attention and the conversation away from the disciples and now toward God, his Father. And he begins to pray. And the text tells us when he had said these words, he looked up to heaven, which is important to, even though it's subtle, it is a reminder that though some keep talking about you know, the God that is within us, even Jesus who was God, who was in the flesh, he looked up to where his Father is because God does not dwell within us in his ultimate glory. God is a distinct entity that we relate to by his grace. And Jesus lifted his eyes up toward heaven and cried out, Father. And he begins to pray in what is often referred to as the high priestly prayer because we'll see him interceding on our behalf But what would be properly called the real Lord's Prayer. Because this is our Lord Jesus Christ praying to the Lord our God, the Father. And there's the conversation that's going on. We're seeing his heart. We're seeing his passions. We're seeing his petitions that are being lifted up. And for those of you who are Bible students, there's an incredible parallel between what Jesus prays here and what he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 and what we call the Lord's Prayer. The pattern that he taught is consistent with what he's doing here. For those of you who are looking at the watches and your stomachs are rumbling, we won't talk about that today. We'll do that some other day. But I just thought I would point that out, that it's a, it's a fascinating and really it's an awesome study into seeing um, just the, the consistency of, of these patterns. Jesus is lifting his uh, attention up uh, to God and the conversation up to him. And he gives us a glimpse into that conversation. And in that glimpse, we are able to see whether or not Jesus' thoughts, which are expressed in prayer, are consistent with the words that he taught and the actions that he lived. I want us to see two things as we look at this passage this morning. The first that I want us to look at is the purpose for which the Lord prayed. And the second thing that I want us to consider is the passion which the Lord has for his people. And so we begin with the purpose for which the Lord prays. And we see that expressed in verses 1 and 5. Start over again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes toward heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then verse, down to verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And as Jesus is offering this prayer, what becomes very clear here is that he is praying for a very specific thing. There are two parts to that, but a very specific thing. First, he's praying for his own glory. Not just that people would recognize him and esteem him in a way that he was worthy, but he's praying for something that's very specific that goes beyond what we might think. Jesus is saying, the glory that I had when I was with you from the very beginning, meaning not the beginning of the world, but whenever the beginning, as in Genesis starts in the beginning was, and John begins in the beginning was the word. And the, in that beginning, it's, Jesus is affirming and saying, look, I laid this aside for a time in order to fulfill the purpose which we agreed and that you sent me and that I volunteered for. I laid down that glory, but now the hour has come. Father, my prayer is that you would restore that glory, that people would recognize that I am God, I am your equal, and, and then he has a purpose in it. It's not just a matter of pride. That, you know, I'm tired of people you know, not recognize my inherent greatness, and I, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, 
many people seem to fail, most people I know seem to fail to recognize my inherent greatness, but um, mostly the ones who know me best. Um, but, but that's not the attitude that Jesus is demonstrating here. He's, he's wanting the glory that is rightly his, that he would be glorified again, and he says for a purpose, that in my glory then the, you, the Father, you would be glorified. And so he wants his, his own glory and he wants the Father's glory, but those two things are inseparably linked, that the Father, that in his own glory, he would glorify the Father. Ultimately, what Jesus is praying for is for the glory of God to be revealed in his life and in this world. And he says, look, the hour's come. This is, it's time for this to happen. And moving ahead, what we need to see in this text is that God's glory is revealed most clearly in the cross. And the reason that we need to make that note is because it is the priority of Jesus' prayer. It's what he's praying. And it's the time at which he's praying. And I, at the risk of sounding like a, a broken record because it's one of the passions that I repeat regularly, it's one of the things that seems to be confused in Christianity, even in evangelical Christianity in our culture. People wonder, what is the central message of Christianity? What is the essence of being a Christian? And many wonderful people taking God's word seriously assume that the essence of being a Christian is obeying the teachings of Jesus and then following in his example. They don't disregard the cross, but the cross becomes either merely an entry point or one important fact in the knowledge or the greatest demonstration of self-sacrifice that we then are called to live out. These ideas themselves are not wrong, but they are misplaced, or at least they are out of order from the priority that our Lord himself has and that he expresses and expresses very clearly in the beginning of this prayer. His prayer very definitely is for the glory of God to be revealed in his life so that God would be glorified and that it would be done through the cross. And if you're one who's struggling with that idea, that juxtaposition as to well, what's really important, let me ask you this question. See, for the past three years, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's been out amongst the people and he has been engaging them, meeting their needs because he's had compassion on them, because he, he loves the people that he had come to. And he's even performing miracles such that people are blown away and they are drawn to him. And in several occasions, they commit themselves to being his followers. In fact, at one point, they even want to make him king. And when he kind of says, yeah, no, they physically were going to force him to become the king. They were getting violent to elevate him to become their king, which is confusing because he is the king. He came to be the king, and, but he said no. And all the time that people would constantly come and say, we like the way you live. We like the way you teach. We want you to be our leader. Over and over again, he would say this, my hour has not yet come. 
But now here, only hours from going to the cross, he says, my hour has come. Now, if the primary purpose was to set an example and to teach not only sound doctrine, but ways of living, wouldn't all those other hours have been good opportunities? Because that's what he was giving himself to. But Jesus very clearly here is saying, my hour has come as he is awaiting the cross. And the reason that we need to take note of that is because it is through the cross that we most clearly see the glory of God. See, the gospel paradox is this, that it is in the depths of Jesus' state of humiliation that he earns the heights of exaltation. This is what the Apostle Paul declares in the song, that hymn that he records for us in his letter to the Philippians, telling us that we all ought to adopt the same mindset of that of Jesus Christ, who although in being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, in other words, something to be held onto. He wasn't grasping for position, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of this was accomplished as Jesus Christ says, now is the hour the priority, the purpose for which I have come is to glorify you, Father, and that will be seen on the cross. When I am at the lowest, when I am the most despised, when I am the most humiliated, that is when I will be the most exalted. And because of that, people will see the glory of your grace, of your love, of your wisdom, of your justice, of your compassion. All of that is evident in the cross when we have the opportunity to see it back as it's been revealed to us. It's the prayer that Jesus offers. It's been the purpose of his life and was the purpose of his death. And so the question that we need to ask is this, if Jesus' purpose and his prayer is that his life would be lived and even his death would be given that God would be glorified. How does that align with the purpose of your life, my life? How's that reflected in our prayers? Now, we do need to wrestle with this question as, well, what about the example, and what about the obedience, and what about the ministry of compassion, and even the miracles that Jesus was doing? I don't believe that moving the priority and the essence from all of those things onto the cross in any way uh, detracts from Jesus' teaching or diminishes the, uh, the, his, his works at all. In fact, if anything, I think that it enhances them. And here's why. Because it was on the cross and through his resurrection that Jesus demonstrated and gave absolute proof that he is God, not just someone who was wise, who was endowed with wisdom and, and giftedness to come and speak and to teach and to live a good life that is worthy of emulation. But we now know that every word that he spoke came from the mouth of the living God. 
which therefore gives them power and authority that we need to take and listen to them. And when he says obey, then you know, we know that it's not just he's a good leader. He is God and he's worthy of our obedience. And yet he is good. And so we know that we find joy and goodness even in engaging in the obedience that he's given. It's not that these things are wrong. This is part of being a Christian, but the essence of it is that God would be glorified first and foremost, that we desire our lives to be lived not just for our peace, but for God's glory. But in that, we are challenged to look at our priorities. We're only willing to do that just by our nature. And we also consider the second thing that I think is revealed here, which is the passion our Lord has for his people. We see that evidence in verses 2 through 4. Now, what I want you to notice in particularly in verses 2 and 3, we have kind of a, a, a small, a short chain link. They are three points that are, are linked here uh, that Jesus is revealing. And the first one, uh, chain, the link in that chain is this, is that God has granted all authority to Jesus. In verse 2, since you have given all authority over the flesh, you've given him, Jesus is speaking in the third person, you've given uh, the Son, you've given Jesus Christ, all authority over the flesh. Over the flesh means over all people. Every, you know, Jesus has all authority. He reigns. He is the king over all of humanity. The second chain that is connected to that uh, but is distinct here is that God has also vested in Jesus the authority to give eternal life because we see that further on in this particular passage. Again, verse 2, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Now, in this particular verse, we also see the beauty of the doctrine of election. We'll talk about that next week, not today. But what we do need to see today is this, is that one of the truths that is revealed here in Jesus' prayer is that God had given him all authority, and part of that authority is to give eternal life to those that God had given them, a particular people from every generation, from every tribe, but a particular people that God had, had given to Jesus. Jesus now has authority and the ability to give them that gift. And then we see a third point, which is the definition of that life that we are given. And we see that in verse 3, because here is defined, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So these are the three keys of understanding the passion that God has for his people because they are all related. And what we will see as we explore these things is this, is that while the priority of, of our lives is to be given to the glory of God, because of the passion that God has for his people, that which is good for us, that which is what we would call life, really living, is inseparably linked to our living in Christ and for his glory. Now, again, I'm going to touch on this because I think it's vitally important. I spent a bit of time last week on this, but the whole idea of life. We need to be reminded that there are two primary words that are used in the scriptures when we talk about life. One is bios in the Greek, from which we get biology, and from that we can figure out what, what they're focused on. It just... You know, being born, living, breathing, eating, everything that in, in involves just kind of biologically existing. The other word is zoe, which means abundant life, joy. It's what we long for in life. I was thinking of the movie Braveheart, and one of my favorite lines, which from what I understand is historically questionable, but, you know, never let facts get in the way of a good story. 
It was toward the end of the movie when William Wallace is in chains. And the princess, soon to be the queen, comes in and she begs him to confess, even though he'd be lying, so that there would be mercy. At least he would probably, um, he would still probably die, but he would die a merciful death. And it might even be possible that he would get pardoned. The first thing he says, if I was to confess, I would, you know, everything that I am would be dead already. And then she said, but if you don't do this, then you're going to die. And then William Wallace says this, every man dies. Not every man really lives. So what kind of life is he talking about there? It's, you know, because it really would be logically incongruous to say, well, every man dies, but not every man really biologically lives. I mean, well, don't you kind of have to biologically live before you could die? I mean, we, nobody looks at that and assuming that that's what he means. He's speaking of a life, and in this case, a life of freedom. A life that may be filled with pitfalls and challenges and difficulties, not only to gain the freedom, but to keep the freedom, but because there is a life in that freedom that is worth every sacrifice that is made, he is willing to give his life for that so that he can experience real life. Whatever that life that he's defining, whatever that life would be, that's kind of what Zoe, that's just the life that Jesus has the authority to give. And that life that we are referring to here is not just the taste that we can experience here in life, but it is real life for all of eternity. Whatever it is that would bring joy, whatever it is that we live for, however we understand that, and I'm not trying to make it relative, but that which gives our life joy, that's what he is here, and Jesus has the authority to do that. And yet, he tells us how we find that, and that is found in knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. And what he's saying here is this. It's not just a matter of knowing in the intellectual sense a series of facts, but the, the Greek word here is really reflecting the most intimate kind of knowledge that anyone can have. The, the Hebrew word behind the, the Greek word here is the, the same that is used in Genesis when it says, and Adam knew his wife. It, it conveys an intimacy Knowledge that goes beyond bullet point. It's just there's an understanding. There's, it's that kind of knowledge. And the force of the language here in this text tells us that this intimate knowledge, this knowing of knowing the, the only living God is a deepening, growing. It's not an achievement, but it's a relationship and part of the life is growing deeper in that knowledge of God. The greater our intimacy, the greater God is glorified, but then when we are in that relationship, then the greater God is glorified, the greater our joy. And so this life that we desire, Jesus is praying that we would have. The difference is we look for it in a variety of different places, and Jesus, who is God, he's praying for it and wanting us to experience it in the only place that it can be found, and that is in the person of the living and true God, who Jesus is also, who's come in the flesh. It's not something that we get from God, but that we find in God. And so he's praying that we would recognize that in that relationship that we have with God is the life all the joy that we desire as we grow deeper and deeper in that relationship.
And it makes sense in this way. Let me illustrate it with a story. The great 19th century author, Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, wrote a short story that he called The Great Stone Face. It's a story of a little boy who grows up in a sprawling um, valley village. And overlooking the village and and that valley is, is a mountain. And on the side of the mountain appears the face of a man. Here's how Hawthorne writes it. The great stone face was a work of nature in her mood of majestic playfulness. Formed on the perpendicular side of a mountain by some immense rocks which had been thrown together in such a position as when viewed at a proper distance, precisely to resemble the features of the human countenance. It seemed as if an enormous giant or a titan had sculpted his own likeness on the precipice. There was the broad arch of the forehead, a hundred feet in height, the nose with its long bridge, and the vast lips which, if they could have spoken, would have rolled their thunder accents from one end of the valley to the other. True it is that if the spectator approached too near, he lost the outline of the gigantic visage and could discern only a heap of ponderous and gigantic rocks piled in chaotic ruin one upon another. But retracing his steps, however, the wondrous features would again be seen. And the, father, and the further he withdrew from them, the more like a human face with all its original divinity intact did they appear until as it grew dim in the distance with the clouds and glorified vapor of the mountains clustering about it the great stone face seemed positively to be alive so you have this valley under the mountain with the rock formation looking like a human face to those who were able to see it And there was a legend that was attached to that mountain and to that face. And the legend was that one day someone would come into the village who bore resemblance to the face that was on the rock. And when he or she came, would bring great blessing to the village. And the young boy was fascinated with the story, and therefore he was fascinated with the rock itself. He would spend many of his uh, free hours going to situate himself in such a way that he was able to see that face. And he would spend hours, he would gaze at that face, and he would spend time contemplating, wondering who it would be that would one day come into the village and bring great blessing to his people and to his family. He told his mother at one time, I hope he comes in my lifetime. But the promise wasn't fulfilled in his youth. The promise wasn't even filled in his young adulthood. There had been people that had come, a few occasions where people had shown promise. People thought, maybe this is the one. But in the end, every one of them had proven themselves to be unworthy of being this particular person. And so any likeness that they thought they might see uh, evaporated when they realized they they were not uh, the one that was coming. And yet this boy who is now an old man 
never gave up the hope, never gave up his fascination with, about the legend uh, about this rock. And so he continued his pilgrimages out to this place where he would regularly gaze upon the rock and contemplate the promises and wonder who, and now as an old man, when this person who was promised would come. And then one day, after making his pilgrimage out to his place, he came back into the village as dusk was settling in. And he heard a loud gasp. And someone shouted, He's here! He's here! The man who looks like the face on the mountain. And so this old man who grew from a boy began looking around. He's been waiting a lifetime and looking all around him to see where this man was. But as people began flooding out into the main artery of this village, he recognized for the first time that we're talking about him. He had spent a lifetime gazing and pondering, giving himself to that rock. And over that time, Everything that was associated with that rock had shaped him. He now bore in his character the countenance that was reflected in that rock. So do you see what Hawthorne is saying here? Because it's a beautiful allegory for the promises that are made in the scripture. What Hawthorne is saying is that to which you give your heart, that to which you give your mind, that to which you give your attention, it shapes you. And we are told in the great promise of God that when we gaze upon Jesus Christ, we not only see God in the flesh, but over time we become like him. And it is in being like him that we find the joy of life that we so long desire. It's not that we have no problems. Clearly, Jesus was attacked. He was hated and despised. And yet he remained in peace and the, the giver of peace. He was the one who was the giving, giver of joy and the giver of hope and the giver of life. And when we look at him, the promise of Scripture is that we have, we become like him. And in so being, that intimacy which is developing we find the joy that we so want desperately and we cling to in different ways. This passage, Jesus is praying and giving us the key that the mind of God is revealed in the teachings and in the actions of Jesus Christ. They are all congruous because our hope, our joy is found in him when we desire him and his glory above all. When we focus our attention on him, that is how we find the life that is worth living, and even the life that is worth dying for. Even as I asked the question earlier about whether our prayers are in line with Jesus' prayer for the glory of God, we see here, this is the prayer of Jesus, not only for his glory, but for his people as an expression of his love. Is this what you're praying for? Is this what you're living for? Is this what you're longing for? Our life, our joy, is inextricably linked to knowing God in the fullness of his glory. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of your people to see you as you are known throughout the creation, but perfectly in Christ Jesus and in him alone. May by the word that you have recorded, the thoughts that are in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the life that he lived, may we know you and know the love that you have for your people. Turn our attention to him and therefore find life and joy. For it is found nowhere else that is lasting, nowhere else that is true. Shape us, O Lord, that we might become like Christ, that we might know Christ, that we might become as Christ. To your glory and the benefit of the people around us. I pray in Jesus. Amen.